the most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. I have this moment where I'm like, okay, I'm on the, I'm on Air Force Two briefing the vice president in her private cabin, and I'm about to sit. You have you arrived know, on you this plane. Arrived. That's, that's the good stuff, man. That's the story. <laughs> that's we long, that's, it's a long way from the west side of Detroit, <laughs> brothers. It's a long way from Dexter. I'm Khalil Gibran Muhammad. I'm Ben Austin. We are two best friends. <laughs> one black. One white. I'm a historian. And I'm a journalist. And this is Some of My Best Friends Are. Some of my best friends are, like, I don't hate establishment Democrats. <laughs> Some of my best friends are establishment Democrats. <laughs> you got it? <laughs> yes, so in yes, this yes. show, we wrestle with the challenges. And the absurdities. Of a deeply divided and unequal country. And today, we're going to consider the future of the U.S. presidency. Joe Biden's getting up there in age, and his vice president, Kamala Harris, is next in line for the presidency. We're going to talk about who she is with someone who knows her better than any of our best friends. Jamal Simmons, who was the communication director for Kamala Harris. And he happens to also be an old friend of ours. And listen, this is his first podcast interview since he left the White House. Mm, this is a scoop. So let's do it. 
So, Khalil, the president of the United States, our president, Joe Biden, Mm -hmm. is 80 years old. Yes, yes. 80, or I should say, old AF. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, my wife, Danielle, was recently in Arizona to visit her uncle and aunt. And Mm -hmm. she ended up watching the State of the Union with all these 80-year-olds. Okay, and, that's right. Because you know they're 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 from Chicago, but they they went down there to kind of like winter. Um, that's right. And, Snowbirds. And so she's watching it with them, and you know all these eighty year olds are commenting on his his age and how he looks and whether he's had work done on his face and like how he's moving. <laughs> I had the same conversation with <laughs> with with my cousin who I was watching it with, whether he had Botox or not. Let's just name it. Like you know, look pretty clear to me. You know, and so the the whole question of his age was was so even more present in that viewing for her because um, it wasn't just how young people view him. It's, it's how his actual peers view him. And That's like, right. you know, man, they're like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm retired. I'm not, I'm not, I don't have the biggest job in the world right now. <laughs> yeah. They're basically saying, I don't even think it's a good idea that, <laughs> that, that, that this guy is, uh, is gearing up to maybe run for a second term. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that is the question. Right. And so much the question that uh, I was watching it and looking at Kamala Harris the whole time. And it's sitting behind him over his right shoulder, as they do. Like, that's how it works. Yeah, Yeah. 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 I mean, and I have to say, like, watching her in this role in this back half of the Biden presidency, these next two years where the Republicans have now taken majority and she's sitting next to the speaker, Kevin McCarthy, as opposed to Nancy Pelosi. Right. I mean, right. it did hit me differently. And I I have to say, I had a lot more pride in just seeing her in that role symbolically than I than I remember having when I watched her next to Nancy Pelosi. Um, mm, that's and, interesting. Yeah. And, and it had me thinking a lot about uh, how Biden's own decision to run for a second term has huge implications for whether or not Kamala Harris will be the presumptive uh, nominee in a 2028 race, because at that point, there'll be no question she's served two years or two terms in this vice presidential role. Yeah, I mean, that's what we're going to try to unpack today. What we're going to talk about is is this attention on Kamala Harris, mm-hmm. because when you do have an 80-year-old president, man, the vice president, it means something, right? <laughs> like like in, 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 in one sense, like, yeah. yeah, man, she could be president next week. That's right. There's a lot That's of right. scrutiny on her because of this. That's right. There's so much scrutiny, by the way, that the New York Times ran a pretty significant story reported by some of their top political reporters who had access to the high-ranking Democrats in the White House uh, who expressed some concern about whether or not she actually would be a liability for the ticket in 2024. You're saying, Khalil, that, that even if she's just on the ticket as vice president, that somehow that's a liability for Biden. Like like it might mean that a Trump or a, a, a Ron DeSantis, the, the governor from Florida, they might win because because she's just even part of the ticket again. Well, yes. And, and I'm saying that's what the New York Times is reporting uh, because 
she would be that much closer to potentially inheriting the presidency in light of the fact that Biden might either not make it through his term or might be incapacitated. I mean, you know, just as a matter of history, this is not uh, abstraction. The notion of someone dying in office is a very real thing. And Democrats yeah. are suggesting that she might be a liability if, in fact, people start calculating whether or not Joe Biden can make it through uh, the end of his term. And so, so all of this makes me think, like, there's such a need to assess Kamala Harris and and the role she's done as vice president and who she is and what her values are and, you know, maybe how she might govern in a much more like, you know, in a serious way um, yeah. and to, yeah. to understand more about her. Because, you know, so this idea of her being the, the VP and, and being, as you said, like feeling this kind of pride, there's a woman of color there in this role the first time ever. Yeah, yeah. Um, she's the first she's the first black woman uh, in this role and she's Asian the first woman. Asian American uh, woman in this role. And, and, you know, I mean, that Times article talked about some of this of sort of that the that role of her, how her race and gender plays into some of this. And, and even as as slights, um, mm -hmm. there's this one note in there of like when she goes on these foreign trips and meets dignitaries and, you know, the vice presidents of, of other countries, they, they try to introduce or set up meetings with the first ladies of these other countries. I know. Isn't that crazy? And she's like, nah, <laughs> yeah. I'm not doing that. that. That's not that's not what I'm about. That's but right. Like, yeah. So. I want to think more about about her identity politics, um, her actual politics, and also like, man, you know, what is a vice president? What are they supposed to do? What are what are we supposed to expect from them? Are we holding her to a standard that's unfair um, or not? And so, that's right. well, we need to find out more. That's right. And on this point, uh, her former communications director Jamal Simmons, who uh, only stepped down in the last few weeks, and guess what? We get that's, to talk to him. <laughs> we get, that's, that's who we have on today, Jamal Simmons, who's been a longtime friend of ours. Yes. He worked as Kamala Harris's communications director for all of 2022. He held this position for a year. He is our friend, and he is going to be our Kamala Harris explainer. That's right. We're going to learn a lot more about her from someone who's one of our best friends who can give us the inside scoop. Let's do it. Jamal, what's up, my man? It's great to see you. It's good to see you guys. First, I want to say that uh, we've known each other since college. You know, you were in Morehouse and you were friends with Danielle, who is now my wife. And she and I were dating then. And she was going to school in Atlanta, too. And so yeah. we've actually been friends since then. I mean, that's been, been a yeah. little bit. And the first thing I want to say is you getting this job as the communications director for the vice president of the United States. I was just, I just what? felt, I just felt immense pride. So I just felt pride. I appreciate yeah, that. Man. It was a, uh, it was a good time and an honor and a privilege, you know, to be there. And uh, I felt the moral support that I was getting, even though I was exhausted <laughs> all of the time. <laughs> we, we can only imagine that we yeah. want to hear, we want to hear exactly what makes one exhausted in the White House. So listen, um, I mean, I'm a historian, Ben's a journalist, but neither one of us are political junkies, certainly not in the way you are. And while we pay close attention to what's happening in the country nationally, obviously, 
but but here you are coming off of being the man in charge of the messaging of the vice president of the United States of America. So tell us exactly what you did. Yeah, I mean, I, I got to admit, I, don't, I actually I'm proud of him, but I don't I don't I have no clue what he actually did. <laughs> like, was all it that, you were you just year. approving e- emails to send out under her name? I mean, that's that's probably what it well, was. Well, right? I would say all of the above, right? Um, <laughs> so I'll just tell you this: my first day in the office was January 10th of uh, 2022. And uh, I got about 487 emails that day. I, I counted. Uh, and some of them you can kind of get rid of immediately because they don't really matter. I mean, they matter, but it's just like somebody sending you a press release about an announcement somewhere. Some of them, though, are conversations that are happening between people. But ultimately, the communications director's job is to figure out all the ways the vice president is engaging in the public through media speeches in my office. I had the director of speech mm. writing, the press secretary, uh, the digital director, um, and then a communication staff. And so all those people reported to me. And the idea was that we should all be saying the same thing on the same day. Uh, okay. And so mm. that was the job was to figure out, you know, with my colleagues in the other departments and the vice president, what is it that we want to talk about on Tuesday? And how is it that we're going to communicate that message to as many people as possible? And what venues are we going to do it? And then we present that to the vice president. And then she crosses off 50% of what it is we say, add in a bunch of more. (laughs) And then, you know, she goes out and says, and, and and tell us a story of like a time that that you came up with a message and it it went south or something where it was like really tricky. Um, well, we're, luckily, I will say I didn't have any experiences where uh-huh. things went south. There were some experiences I think people had before I got there, um, and it, and and you, it is, you know, I would just say all the success was hers, all the mistakes were mine. Um, oh, there you are. We, oh yeah, okay, looking, yeah, looking, yeah, looking whatever, for that next fine. job. Looking, <laughs> come on. <laughs> um, yeah. No, but uh, you know, the big thing is she actually knows a lot about what she wants to say. The thing to remember about. Kamala Harris is that she spent her entire early part of her career as a prosecutor. So like many of us, when we start learning our jobs, those lessons that we learn very early tend to stick with us throughout the rest of our careers. So for her, Mm -hmm. words have a lot of meaning because as she would say, when she would get up in front of the public and talk to the press, it was usually about somebody's freedom, right? Because if she was going to prosecute somebody, they may go to jail. Um, or it was about a family that was in pain because something had occurred to them and she felt some responsibility to them. So that always informed what the word choices she would make, the, um, the ways she wanted to communicate. Sometimes I would say she could have been a little bit more rhetorical. Um, I wanted her to sometimes be a little bit more, um, you know, a little more political flourish or kind of a, you know, a bigger story. But I think her responsibility- Are you saying that she was not that funny? Is that- <laughs> no, <but laughs> she could be as funny as it sounds like just to like me. The like, yeah. She just would be so- She could just be kind I, of serious. <laughs> yeah, she could just be kind of I don't of think of- I don't- I don't think of a single prosecutor who I've ever heard actually told a joke that anybody was interested in laughing at. So she needed she, to loosen up. She would never tell jokes on, you know, in that environment, right? Because it's, it's usually a very serious environment. So I think the thing that uh, I always hoped that she would do more of, which was, which was be a little more funny, be a little more personally revealing um, and, uh, you know, 
talk more about the bigger picture, but she always wants to take the bigger picture and then figure out like what way to make it real to people in very concrete ways. Uh, and that's kind of mm. her brand is like, you know, what does this mean? We're going to do a, we passed this huge bill. We're going to spend a bunch of money on infrastructure. I'm in Chicago today. Tell me about the stretch on, on Wabash, you know, Avenue or whatever. Tell me about Wabash. 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 You heard that, Ben? He called it Wabash. That, that's, that's, Wabash. The that's the original, Wabash. That's the original <laughs> Polish pronunciation. He's going deeper. He's got, he's got more roots than we do. He's like, he researched this. Wabash. I love it. Uh, <laughs> you got it. You got it, Wabash. How much money are we going to spend on Wabash, right? So... Hey man, we're looking for jokes wherever we can find them. I love it. I'll take it. I'll take it. I've been, listen, I've been in the White House. It's like a joke-free environment. So I'll I'll uh, get my joke <laughs> okay. game back up. And 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 what about you? Like what's the moment of of this year of this intense work where you probably didn't see your family, you didn't see your young children? What's the moment that you're most proud of? Like your own your own work that you did? You know, there there are some things I'm proud of that have really, really very little to do with me. So for instance, when um the tragedy happened in Buffalo, the shooting. We went to Buffalo and the vice president was just going to go to attend a funeral. She was sitting in the front row of a pew and they invited mm -hmm. her to come up and speak. And she got up and spoke and gave one of her most compelling addresses. We didn't write it. She you know, just got up and gave it off the cuff. Um, but then she also went and met with some of the families in like the church gymnasium and just watching her walk you know, family to family, shaking hands, hugging people, talking about their loved ones, talking about the tragedy that had occurred. And I said to her, like, wow, this is, um, I was like, you know, you were really, you know, you were really kind of good in there. Like, and she said, you know, I spent my entire career talking to people in pain. Um, and she had wow. a really, you wow. know, way of talking to people who were experiencing like a profound moment of grief. And I think those families felt comfort, you know, having her there. That was a big yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. I do have a follow up question, though. It's like, yeah. you know, I'm thinking about about what you said about her skills, right, as a prosecutor and the way in which she was very careful and deliberate uh, in addressing these very serious topics before the public. Yeah. And I'm thinking about like a, a pastor who has to do a lot of eulogies, like there's a certain kind of rhetorical structure that you're accustomed to because people are always in pain when you are addressing them. And mm -hmm. you just have this natural way of, of deliberately walking that line between the kind of you know acknowledgement of that grief as well as the aspiration that people want to believe you know, in, in, in where this person is going next, you know, their heavenly afterlife and the family's gonna move on. So we yeah. just learned a little bit more about her gifts. Um, <laughs> she could be a prosecutor or she could be a pastor uh, giving you the <laughs> Well, you know, it's, the other thing I'll, I'll say, there was another big moment, which we all, you know, you all saw in the news, the, the when the Supreme Court, um, started to rule on Roe v. Wade, the Dobbs decision. The first thing that happened mm. was the, the case leaked before it was supposed to come out, right? So the case leaked. Right. We go into her office. She's supposed to speak at Emily's List that night, which is a pro-choice women's political organization. She's supposed to speak at Emily's List that night. We're sitting in her office around the around the table, and she starts talking about the what, what's come out in the leak of the decision. She said, if this is true, that means they're going to go after privacy rights. That's our freedom. That's liberty. She starts like going through this whole list and she starts saying, you know, I mean, who are these guys? How dare they do this to America? How dare they? And she starts going through this. And so I'm sitting there and I look at the speechwriter and I'm like, 
And so he's, you know, like right. they're typing, he's typing and she's talking. And so that ended up in the speech she gave that night at Emily's List, which was mm. one of the most quoted mm. you know, moments for her. Well, we say, how dare they? How dare they tell a woman what she can do and cannot do with her own body? How dare they? How dare they is right. Wow, what a powerful voice in that moment for Kamala. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Jamal is going to make the case for his former boss, Vice President Kamala Harris. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle to everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on the storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, NA member FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill? 
It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. We are back with Jamal Simmons, the, the former now communications director for the vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris. And he is on Some of My Best Friends Are. And while most people can only hear us, we can actually see you, Jamal. And I'm seeing these like <laughs> folders on your desk. And some of them are marked classified, I think, and top secret. <laughs> like, you have all these, these documents there. What are those? <laughs> and so for, yeah, the, for the, for the uh, security services that are listening to this, the, <laughs> these are jokes. These are all just jokes. <laughs> um, you know, what's funny, what's funny is I was listening to this uh, quote-unquote scandal that's been unfolding for the last few weeks. And... I was thinking about my exit from the White House and the briefing that I got. You were like, don't give me shit. Which was basically like, (laughs) this belongs to you. (laughs) Nothing belongs to you. You can take the pictures of your kids and, you know, the cards that were given to you. Everything else belongs to the government. So you should leave it in this white box and uh, good luck. All right. So, so listen, we, we are, we are expectant, like so many people that at minimum, the current vice president, Kamala Harris, will likely be a presidential candidate in 2024. She was once already. So this won't be the first time that she at least runs in a primary. So we don't know what Biden's going to do, but let's just say that she's in the, the cards. But before we figure out, like, how to evaluate her as a future presidential candidate. We want to have a clearer sense of how to judge her as a vice president. So let's just start off with a really basic question. What the hell does a vice president do anyway? Okay, I just want to say this one thing. Joe Biden is running for president in 2024. <laughs> so everybody oh my should God, just we just, sort of... we just broke we just broke the news. Ben, this is the we've been waiting for this moment for two seasons. We just broke news. All right. It is, by Excellent. all expectations, he's running for president. She will be his vice president, uh, vice presidential uh, running mate. You may see her, I think, in 2028. Listen, th- here's the thing about Kamala Harris. She's 58 years old. Yeah, she's going to be too um, old in 2028. Joe Biden is 123. Like, you can, <laughs> I was joking. I was joking. You can remember president, president now. Right? <laughs> Best line ever. You can run for president forever. Um, no, so I think, so th- that said, th- th- the likelihood is one day you will see her name on the ballot again um, by itself or at the top of the ticket, uh, whether it's 24 okay. or 28. Um, so, what does the vice president do? The vice president has two responsibilities. One hmm. is to cast votes and tie-breaking tie tie breaking votes in the United States Senate, which is a 50-50 split. All right. She did more of that than any, she, president, any vice president yeah. since like 
John Quincy Adams. Because it happened Adams. to be 50-50 for those, yeah. 26 times, 26, <laughs> 26 times, in, times by the 117th Congress. You yep. just had that in your back pocket, Khalil, or did you? <laughs> oh, come on, man. You know, I, I, I'm just playing. I'm pl- possum here. I'm already. Okay. I'm just playing possum. He's, he's, he's a well-researched <laughs> man, this Khalil. Um, uh, and so, so that's number one job is to cast tie-breaking votes. Number two job is to be ready in case you have to become, become president. That's it. Everything else is like made up. Mm. So um, I had this. <laughs> I had this approach when I took the job, and I would talk to my staff about this. That what the idea of something being vice presidential is built upon a notion b- created by every other person who has ever been vice president. So mm-hmm. whatever Kamala Harris does will become vice presidential because she is the vice president. <laughs> and okay. therefore she will set the tone for her for whatever the future of this office is. And so we should take advantage of that and we shouldn't feel imprisoned by what other people chose to do or chose not to do. And if you think about her versus our most recent vice presidents, um, we you have, mean like the guy she's the vice president for? <laughs> exactly, like a Joe Biden type. So we have this notion, we have this notion of these vice presidents who are people who are more experienced in the ways of Washington and politics, in national politics than the president, right? Joe Biden, mm-hmm. the Washington tutor for Barack Obama, you know, George H.W. Bush was the you know, the tutor for uh Ronald Reagan. Um and, Al, and Dick Al Cheney Gore. was the act and Dick 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 hold on, but Dick Cheney was the actual president, right? Like <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't tutoring George Walker Bush. He uh, he was actually the president. Okay. Sorry, sorry about that. So right. So we, so you see you see the pattern. You see the pattern here. Uh and Cheney being the most extreme case. Um, that's not true for Kamala Harris, right? Like Joe Biden has got the most uh Washington experience. So in her world, I, I always looked at it like this. She is the face of the America we're becoming, not the America that we used to be, right? It's more educated. It is uh, more centered in the Sun Belt, the West and Southern states of the United States, um, and frankly, a little more progressive. So um, so she should not be thinking about how a um, conservative white guy used to do this job, conservative white guy who'd been in Washington his whole life, his whole career, you should do this job. She should do the job based on who she is and bring something new. So we spent most of our time traveling around the country three days a week, meeting people who were out in the country, bringing people from other parts of the country to Washington to meet with her and her office, because I believe that her power lie out in the country with the people who were looking for her to lead, not sit in marble uh, hallways inside Washington, D.C. or the White House. So don't play the game of Joe Biden or Al Gore. Make a new game where you go out to the country, not one where you go out to the Senate. So this is like her basically going around meeting with all the AKA branches, the Alpha Cap Alpha branches around the country. So <laughs> to, 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 to break with tradition. That is, that is a part of, uh, in fact, of maybe what she did. <laughs> so it was, you, called, you called it the ski we tour, right? <laughs> I will say, I will say this. There were more divine nine meetings, not just AKAs, but there were more divine nine meetings in the last year of my life than probably in the last 35 years of my life. <laughs> All right, so Ben 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 is in this conversation and while he's cool, he, he you know, I just have to tell you Ben, Divine 9 are the historically black fraternities and sororities. It's it's the umbrella way to define all of them together. Just I thought I'd let you Man, know that. Thank you, Sans. <laughs> oh, oh, all right, all right, all right. Wait, I, w- I was I was five beta kappa. <laughs> 
he is married to an AKA, so I'm sure he's heard some of this before. <laughs> That's true. So, so Jamal, you came as into this I. job as a communications director at a time when, when Kamala Harris was getting criticized for a dysfunction in her office. And she's often criticized. And I want to hear from you, like, can we talk about the criticisms of her? Could you tell us maybe sure. to start, like, like, what are the invalid ones? What are the ones that you think are, are, are trumped up? Or maybe we can't say trumped up anymore. What are the ones that you think <laughs> maybe, are, are maybe inflated? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe we can. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so I'll start here, which is that racism and sexism, misogyny are real. Um, and mm. uh, it is mm. not that she is flawless. It's not that she doesn't make mistakes. It is, however, true. Two things are true. One, when she makes mistakes, um, they are magnified and people look to them as more of an indicator of some innate ability or disability yeah. or, or lack of ability mm -hmm. um, than if somebody else makes a mistake. I mean, Joe Biden says things all the time, you know, and turn out to be wrong or or, or I'm a fucker as president. Yeah. If you looked at the things he said over time, <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. Like if you just if those if you just took the list of his his malapropisms or like screw ups or like, you know. <laughs> funky things he said just about like Barack Obama. I mean, somebody asked me the other yeah. day, they were like, yeah, so what, you know, where's Kamala Harris been? I'm like, what do you really remember about Joe Biden? You remember a couple things about Joe Biden. One, um, healthcare bill passes, big fucking deal. <laughs> right? He says into the microphone mm -hmm. and Barack Obama's like patting him on the shoulder like, come on, bro, stop. Um, uh, <laughs> and then two, two, the beer summit. And then the third one, I would say, is when he came out in favor of marriage equality before the before. Yeah, I was going to mention did, that one. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's kind of which was really... a gaffe, which was kind of a gaffe in and of itself, right? So from a communication standpoint, I mean, uh, just very briefly yeah. describe how that was a communications crisis in a way. So the president, the, the number one, okay, the number three job of the vice president after <laughs> vote, yeah. stay alive and take the job. The number three job is don't upstage the president. Yeah. <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. It, is, yeah. it is one of the cardinal problems. And I'll tell you, people always say, well, you know, about the filibuster or one of these other issues, you know, the vice president, vice president Harris should, should, she should say what she wants to say. You know, Joe Biden mm. bucked Barack Obama on marriage equality. She should say something about voting rights or criminal justice or something else, even if Joe Biden doesn't believe it. Well, I think you get one bite at that apple, <laughs> right? You sort of get mm. to do that one time. And you better hope you're on the right side of history. Because if not, <laughs> you could end up spending the rest of your time going to funerals in the South Pacific, you know, South Pacific Islands <laughs> for American allies, you know, <laughs> around the world instead of uh, I think, doing anything I think she was just out there anyway. Is that right? She, <laughs> she did a vacation. <laughs> she was... But <laughs> okay. But I do think that this is this is like a thing. It's a very hard thing to do. Uh, uh, is to buck the president because that is actually like your job is to do the you work for the president of the United States. Um, so, you know, I, it is very hard for the vice president to make news. And so um, and I, and I started off here. She won. Racism, sexism are real. doesn't mean she doesn't make mistakes. just means they get magnified. Two, people think she might run for president one day. So there is a concerted effort on the right to attack her, go after her, you know, and, and uh, blow up any small mistakes she may make uh, and turn that into a bigger deal than it may otherwise be. Okay. Well, you've already said she was uh, very deliberate. So I might already know the answer to this question, but you know, Obama uh, 
was very circumspect and very reserved, stoic even, in the face of the same kinds of attacks, at least because of his, his race mm-hmm. um, as opposed to his gender. Um, and certainly caricatured, lampooned in the most racist ways imaginable. And for the most part, he kept his cool. I mean, uh, with the exception of uh, Michael um, Key and his version of uh, Obama's alternative ego, Luther, and uh, in, in sort of giving voice to this. Is there an alternate ego for Kamala Harris? Does she have her own version of Luther um, that she's playing out either <laughs> in her question. head that you could tell or in private inside of the White House? She actually really is cool as a cucumber. You know, uh, I think these things okay. happen. I'm not saying they don't annoy her, but they. I think they happen and she does let them kind of blow off. Um she also, by the way, likes to use the f bomb. <laughs> it is. Uh oh, all right. <laughs> it, it, which, by the way, is she's by, in good company with Ben. It is by far the best swear word in the in the American language because it is it is <laughs> it is an adjective, a verb, and a noun, right? Depending on usage. <laughs> I, I kind of love that. I so I have to tell you this funny story. So uh, an episode we did, uh, you know, few few episodes back, Ben's mom listen to it and she regularly listens to our show and ben sent her a note asking her something and she answered the note back she's like yeah i'm gonna fucking do this when you fucking tell me to do it and and by the way you fucking curse too much on your show (laughs) so according to jamal i guess ben you're in good company i succeeded i i changed her language to use this fantastic word absolutely absolutely i I like hearing that That was a good question khalil um Jamal, are there valid criticisms? Can you talk about about sort of things that she has slipped up or could do better? Like, was the dysfunction real? Like, we heard all these stories of, of dysfunction in her office and that she's, you know, a, a manager that wasn't able to retain people. So um, here's what I'll say about that. Every day that I was with her, I saw some little black or brown girl look at her like she was Wonder Woman, right? Like she was mm-hmm. their, her, their mm-hmm. own personal superhero. I saw older women of all races, black, white, and others, grab her by the hand and say, I never thought I would see the day, right? Mm. Have a, a woman that would be in this office would be in the White House, even at vice president. Um, and I want you to be president one day. A lot of people would say that. Even if people felt some kind of way, a lot of people would say, like, I hope you get to be president one day. I think she feels very acutely the responsibility to all of those people who are looking at her with this with this expectation this and this um, this pride in her ascent um, and as she would say like she's not the, this is not the first job she was the first black woman AG in California now she's the first black woman vice president so she's had this expectation on her for a long time and i think some of that is part of the reason why she's probably more reserved that somebody would like me would want her to be because the idea mm. of making mistakes, every mistake she made that got blown up in public, I think she didn't just feel it as a personal problem, but she felt perhaps she never told me this, but I, I'm, I'm supposing that she was letting down all these people who looked at her and said, I'm so proud of you. Right. I want, yeah. I want somebody, yeah. I want my daughter to be like you. Um, so I think, um, I think that created like a res- a reservedness about her that I think does not always suit her and does not always, you know, do her well. And I think she could stand to get outside of that. And I think it's rooted though yeah. in something that's very legitimate. It's also rooted in the talk about the staff thing. That responsibility is she feels acutely. She holds herself to a high standard. She holds her staff to a high standard and she can be tough. She can be a tough boss. Um, 
but I think it comes from a place that is rooted in I've got to perform because these there are millions of people who want and need me to perform, and I can't afford to let them down. To get this job, Jamal, did, did you have to tell them that you voted for Kamala Harris in the primary, the Democratic primary? <laughs> uh, nobody asked. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, so I'm, I'm thinking out loud here because Khalil and I, I'm pretty sure Khalil didn't. I know I didn't. Um, and, you know, sort of that to even hear us talk about why, and then maybe you can sort of like, you know, try to to tell us what differently. Well, you know why you didn't? Hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah, tell me. She didn't make it. She didn't make it. She wasn't actually on the ballot in the Democratic primary. That is a good. That well, is a good well, FAQ. Even, yeah, um, even, but you know, what we you mean. know, from from jump, as you're sort of picking who your who your people would be. You know, I mean, I think for me, part of it, part of it was her background as a prosecutor and the attorney general in California, and some of her her stances on on criminal justice and not looking for criminal justice reforms. Um, some of it was that I felt. You know, I'm f- more progressive, I think, than than some of her policies. But and then in a way that I the the sort of symbolic things that you said of being a first, of being a woman, of being a woman of color, those are really important to me. And still, policy things felt like they superseded them. You know, what's interesting? She actually used to be regarded. She was kind of the progressive prosecutor, right? So in San Francisco, she she led the way on prosecutors actually wading into criminal justice reform. So in San Francisco, she started this first step program where she would uh, get people who had been in their first conviction and tried to deal with recidivism and reform and get them into like, you know, uh, track them into other occupations, maybe away from the thing that got them in trouble um, in the first place. So she was ahead of her time on that. And one of the ways she first became known is because in San Francisco, there was a cop killing in her first year as DA. And she and everybody wanted the killer to be uh, prosecuted under the death penalty. And she refused to go after the death penalty for this cop killer. And the police in, in California and all came out against her um, because of this. Mm-hmm. And people were protesting her. So uh, in the early 2000s, she was really at the forefront of prosecutorial criminal justice reform. I think what happened is the movement you know, sort of passed by this leader, which happens to a lot of people in leadership, where you know they start down a place and they get you know, vilified by the establishment for being too pushing too far. And then the activists sort of keep pushing and maybe push past where they were uh, when they started. So she kind of got, she kind of got caught in between both of those, um, both of those poles of being both a progressive and being a prosecutor. I love that you are complicating our impressions. I mean, the truth is, you know, you know, her up close better um, than, than most people certainly having these conversations. I will say that, yeah. you know, her leaning into the role as a top cop, writing a book about smart on crime, you know, this was this was progressive light, right? By the standards of where the conversation moved, you know, no, I think it's fair to say she was well, go ahead. well, Khalil, it's progressive light today. But you, I mean, you're a history major, you're a history a historian. You you kind of have to look at people in the context of their times as well as in the context of what we think may may or may not be like the ultimate. What good, what years right? did she? All right, let's let's run this down real quick. What years did, was she in the office the, the, again? There, there weren't so called uh, progressive three. prosecutors then. It wasn't yet a thing. Yeah. So yeah, she invented the concept. <laughs> that's that's no, what no, I'm no, saying. No, by 2003, the sentencing project had for more than a decade pointed out the the rash of sentencing laws under mandatory minimums and drug sentencing that had wreaked havoc on justice in this country. Mm -hmm. The footprint of racial disparity data by that time was already a mountain. 
And even, I mean, you know, you know this as well as anybody. I was showing Boys in the Hood, which was like a foil for John Singleton to give life to this notion of mass incarceration, the relationship between concentrated disadvantage and a system of brutality from policing, you know, to caging black people as a death sentence. Uh, back in 1991, uh, when that film was released. So while I will accept that within the construct of what prosecutors saw themselves capable of doing, Kamala Harris can claim a role as a pioneer. But there was a politics that was more to the left of where she was, um, and that's important. Now, I'm going to also say one more thing. Um, so without saying too much, you know, I know her sister, Maya Harris, because of my time as a fundraiser at Schomburg when her sister was VP at the Ford Foundation. Yeah. And through a series of relationships, I got to ask a little bit about um, Kamala Harris. And, you know, yeah. what I got, what my little birdie told me uh, was that, you know, she wasn't her sister, that her sister was more progressive. Her sister had been a, worked at the ACLU. Um, and so I think it's fair to say that Kamala Harris was more centrist not just that she was kind of on the cutting edge, but she was fundamentally more centrist on some of these really tough issues than a lot of people even at that time. Listen, I think that may be true. I, I, I wouldn't dispute that. I think what is true though also is that you have different jobs, right? So if, if Maya is a social justice ACLU Ford Foundation you know, NGO leader, that is a different job than being a prosecutor who is charged with enforcing the laws on the books of their community, right? And then trying to do what you can creatively to try to prevent people from being on the on the wrong end of your prosecutorial um, uh, stick, right? So I think it's the same thing is true about being a U.S. senator or being a president. Being a president is not being an activist, so I just think you have to look at people in the role that they are in. And then the, the role of the activist and the community outside of politics is to push the politicians in the direction that it is we want them to go. But if the people are not there, it is very difficult for someone who is elected to go to a place where the people do not support him or her to be. And I think we, you know, the adults, the right. adults in us kind of have to recognize that that's, that's just sort of the way the world works. All right. Well, gonna, um, this is good we stuff. Gotta, we gotta, we gotta keep it moving. I, det you know? I detect the scent from that point. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I did, I did, I did learn something though. That is that um, if she can be funnier and more personable, then she has a really good shot at running for president in 2028 and winning. She's, and the, so, she's the most likely, <laughs> most likely next nominee. Most likely next nominee. So, so here's a good question then, Jamal, or like something for us to think about and discuss. Like you described all the things that she does as vice president and, you know, mm -hmm. those three big roles and then these other sort of tasks that in, in part that you even shaped over the last year of going out and meeting people. How should we judge her as a presidential candidate, say, in 2028? On what basis? Oh, I think people should judge her based on the way we judge every candidate, which is what do they want to do for my future, right? I don't think elections are about the past. Elections are always about the future. And it's about, and they're also comparative. You know, they're also, they're always between candidate A and candidate B, not candidate A and my sense of who the perfect human being ought to be in the world who could sit into sit in an office. Um, but I think we always make judgments about 
um, what somebody's going to do in the future. And then we decide whether or not, you know, it makes sense. Um, we, we also, personal qualities matter a lot. Just, just to push you, you know, further, like, um, okay, we get that it's about the future. So tell us, just, just give us like her top three values. Like, you know, here we are, we've gone through the resurgence of white nationalism and white supremacy. We've had every kind of existential democratic uh, or, or democracy threat unfold before us. Um, so she's not going to have the country that Obama inherited as the first black president. She's going to be the second black president and the first woman um, if she wins. So what is her vision of the future? Um, so first of all, I don't work for her anymore, so I don't, I can't speak directly for her. But what I will say is that um, she believes a lot in uh, inclusiveness and making sure that people who are not at the table are at the table. She believes in standing up uh, to bad actors uh, and making and holding them accountable, right? So if you look at um, like the Corinthian student loan scandal, like she went after them when she was attorney general and then as vice president and president, they helped um, get people, get restitution for some of the people who were taken advantage of by these predatory companies that had gone after um, people who were trying to get educations. So she believes in standing up against people who are trying to take advantage. She believes in making sure people who are not in the picture are at the table um, in order to be included in what it is we're talking about as a country and how we're going to govern. And so I think we'll judge, you will judge her at the time on what it is that she really wants to be, um, what it is she really wants to say and offer the country. Yeah. And people will decide whether or not they think she's, you know, a good enough candidate. Man, I, I love that question, Khalil. What are her values? And Jamal, I love that answer. Like you, you were up close and personal with her. Um, you're right. You don't work for her anymore, but you, you do know her really well, and so you saw these in practice. And so hearing them from you is meaningful, and, and um, if not yet persuasive, it's at least influential. <laughs> listen, there's a lot of, listen, there's so much ground between here and 2024 or 2028. Yeah, uh, yeah there's a lot know, of getting to know. By that point, you, the, the three of us will be thinking about our social security. Do we want to go early retirement or are we going to make it all the way to 65? <laughs> but I do want to say this, and Khalil, I'm going to, I'm going to put you in this camp. I think we've talked about this before. I just am going to take a personal moment of pride that the first black president of the United States was named Barack and the first black woman vice president was named Kamala. They were not named uh, Brian and uh, Camille and Leroy. <laughs> right. or, or, or sorry, <laughs> like you know, like we have. I mean, you know, those of us who've had names that are you know rooted in Africa or are you know our other cultures um, have always had this sort of shadow of people saying, "Oh, your your opportunities are going to be diminished because you have these names that That's sound right. Anglo." And, you know, that quote unquote black sounding names black that, sounding that names. Uh, Bill Cosby b <laughs> before his his own self-destruction used to lampoon and make fun of and tell black people they were their own worst enemies because they named their children these made up names. Right. What an asshole. But <laughs> anyway, here, here, here we are. We've all proved him wrong. Yes, exactly. The, all, three of the, two of the three of us here have those black sounding names. We're doing OK. <laughs> That's right. We're doing the damn thing. All right. We're going to take a quick break before we wrap things up with Jamal Simmons. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently... 
you'll know that fans have this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job. And we have to find out, who did they kill? It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling 
because I was like, this is this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. We are back on Some of My Best Friends Are with Jamal Simmons. Jamal, I actually want to go back earlier in your career because you worked in the Clinton administration as well. Yeah. And I'm thinking about when I first met you, you gave off this vibe of somebody who wanted to go into politics. Like you had that about yeah. you. And I mean, yeah. actually, Khalil, I want to. You said that about me well, too. I want, you say that to I want to throw that. I want to throw this at you, actually, Khalil, because like, like I think everyone who knew Jamal then was like that fool's going into politics in some way. And but you know, Khalil, you had you had some of these ambitions, I guess, but you you never went into politics. You didn't you didn't look in that way. Did you think that was something you want to do? Why or why not? Like what? Well, that's that's really that's funny. You should ask because I actually thought by fifty, Ben, that I would go into politics. It was the Obama era that made me change my mind in the opposite direction, as a you know, as opposed to like actually living up to that ambition. I actually figured I'd do the history thing for about fifteen good years, and I'd go into politics. But yeah, Obama era kind of mm-hmm. turned me off. Yeah, so, what was to it answer about your the question, Obama era that turned you off? Well, I thought like you know, if if. If a guy this brilliant and this committed to uh, political ambition um, can get into a position of power like this and have such a hard time um, sort of reconciling uh, his own biography around racial justice and his own governance strategy, it just seemed it was a little depressing. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time frustrated with his first term and very hopeful for his second term. And the two together left me um, kind of uh, disenchanted. You know, I, I, even to this day, I think there's like a pill that you get when you become elected to these uh, senior leadership roles, whether it's in Congress or in a state house or in the White House. And, you know, you come in and you're like, all right, let's get this shit done. Let's get let's let's do it. And then someone like slips you a Mickey and you're like, okay, we have to follow the rules just as they have been followed and we're going okay. to do these few yeah, things break it down to make a Jamal, difference. Disabuse him of his notions. Educate well, no, us. I'm, I'm not. I'm actually going to put it in a, maybe in a context that, that is familiar. I think about the president of a university, right? Um, the president mm-hmm. of a university kind of has power, but maybe the deans have more power than the president does, right? In some ways, uh, the dean of, Not a, at my of school. a school. Well, <laughs> <laughs> like, don't the deans? I mean, in some ways, so you, so you're the president, but you kind of you have all these people who have their own little fiefdoms, right? Like the mm-hmm. school of you mm-hmm. know journalism or the liberal arts or the school of you know law. They have their own budgets. They have their own little like worlds that they that they govern. Um, and so you can kind of get them to do things, but you just, you're not the dictator, you know, like you have to, so the president's not a dictator. The president is sort of the one who can try to cajole the people and the, and the people who are in charge, whether it's a congressional committee or it's a governor or, you know, whatever it is, they have a say on what the president gets to do. Um, now, some people don't care about the rules. We had a president like that 
uh, from 2017. We've had a few of those, but yes, <laughs> one, recently, one, yeah. one, one very recently. <laughs> yeah, they don't care. They do whatever they think, they do whatever they want. That tends to not end well um, for those people um, because, you know, you sort of have, you have to, it's the consent of the governed. And I think um, if, the, mm. if, the, if the population is split about what it wants, it is very hard for the president to muscle through big ideas um, against the will of, say, 50% of the people. You can do that maybe once, maybe twice. And then one might argue healthcare could have been one of those times for the president, President Obama. It's very hard to do that right. consistently. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think that I'm curious, since you were part of the Clinton administration and you were a young buck, um, like, you know, like we all were back when we were in our 20s. I mean, you know, that was a consequential presidency. Uh, a lot of big things happened. And of course, in hindsight, from the crime bill to the welfare reform bill, which, you know, gutted a lot of the social safety net to the poorest Americans. You know, how did you experience that period working in the Clinton administration? What 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 is your sense of how you experienced that then, as compared to what you've just been through? So those things happened. The crime bill happened. The welfare reform bill happened. I will say the welfare reform bill happened, and both of those bills happened with a lot of support from unlikely places. Today, there are a lot of people today who are mm -hmm. complaining about those bills who were in favor of them at the time. So um, you know. But history is that, but including this, members of the Congressional Black Caucus, I, right? I, I absolutely, yep. a lot of mayors of big cities, a yep. lot of uh, members of Congressional Black Caucus. Um, but at the same time, during that era, you also saw a profound amount of growth in Black wealth. You saw more Black home ownership. You saw lowest Black unemployment. You saw more Black kids going to college. You saw um, higher incomes among African Americans beginning to go up. Um, the debt of the government was sort of going down. So um, the the economic prospects for Black people actually were improving, while of course you had these social costs on the other side that we all look back and say they probably we went too far in some of those social things. The crime bill being the big one, but you can also look at the crime bill. Not to make excuses for it, this is just the politics of sausage making. While there were these horrible uh, punitive um, laws that put people in jail for for a long period of time, there also was the Violence Against Women Act. There also was an assault weapons ban that was in that bill. Um, we haven't been able to get an assault weapons ban passed since that bill was done. So there are things sometimes in politics that you feel like you have to do something you don't like in order to get something done that you think will actually be something you like and you want to see done. You can shut down the bad stuff before it gets to be too bad. If it's, if you start to You are doing your job. You are modeling yeah. your job right now, giving <laughs> us a, a we, you are schooling us on how to sell the Clinton nah, era. I'm, Talk I'm about the communications I'm around guru. In my seat. That is that is you. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, this was such a great conversation. It was so great talking to you. We are just so happy that you uh, made time for us. We appreciate uh, you sharing sensitive government secrets with us. Uh, we appreciate you <laughs> helping to make sense of the complicated things that happen behind the scenes of the White House. And, uh, and we look forward to what yeah, comes man. next for you and for Vice President Kamala Harris. Well, thank you. And this is my first podcast interview since leaving the White House. So I am excited to do it. I appreciate you guys having me. And I'm looking forward to more episodes to uh, find out who some of your best friends right are. Right on, Jamal. Right <laughs> on, Jamal. You got it. Thanks, man. All right, thanks, guys.
Khalil, we broke some news on, on this episode on some of my best friends are today. We are. <laughs> this is amazing. And, and so by my count, I think we broke three things. Okay. Three stories. All right. All right. One, Joe Biden is running in 2024. <laughs> Two, okay. Kamala Harris, despite all the criticism, is going to be his running mate in 2024. We heard it here first on some mm. of my best friends are. Mm. And number three, the next time there's an opening, Kamala Harris is going to run. She's going to be at the top of the ticket. Yeah, man, I, that's that's really that's such important news. We did this, yeah. man. We did this together. No, listen, we're awesome. But no, seriously, man. I mean, listen, th this is high stakes politics, right? Yeah. We we really are talking about a country on the precipice, and the fact that that's where we've come at this moment in terms of national politics means that this next presidential race is probably more important than the last two we've had, and 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 I mean for real. So. Yeah. In light of that, I mean, I took a lot of inspiration from Jamal's insights about Kamala Harris. I have, you know, much better sense of who she is as a person. Yeah. And, amazing, and, amazing to get to speak with him. I mean, he really gave us an, an insider's view. That's right. I, but there's one thing that I just want to sort of think about because I think it matters. Um, you know, he talked about how leaders lead and activists do their thing, and often the activists have to push the leaders in order for them to be effective. And while I think maybe on paper that's generally true, it's not always true in practice. And mm. I'm thinking about when in the middle of Black Lives Matter during the Obama administration, I know people like DeRay McKesson, actually know him as, as, as a personal friend. And he talked about being at the White House and talking to Obama. And he basically said, like, they weren't listening. And they're, they were basically saying, like, you guys are messing it up because we got this. And so I just want to say for the record that we have to not take for granted that our leaders are actually going to respond when activists are doing their work. And then that way, Kamala potentially will have an amazing presidency if everybody keeps their eyes focused on the issues that will save this democracy. Hmm. That's interesting because I'm, I'm thinking about that, what you just said, and I'm thinking about all we learned from Jamal because I certainly have a better understanding of what a vice president does and all the limitations on her. Mm -hmm. And that, that when he was talking about how you can't outshine the president or necessarily disagree, he said you, you have one bite of that apple, you maybe can do it once. Right. And so, so that sense of being, of being limited by this role, which is largely symbolic and political. Um, and so what you were just describing of in, in the VP role for Kamala Harris, how you could, how you could then sort of push poli policy beyond where it is. Um, one of the things I've been thinking about in, in, in from this talk is like that she, the moments when she has shined are in these symbolic spaces when mm -hmm. she's spoken to the issues that you're talking about. And I'm wondering you know, I I haven't felt like I haven't seen her around and do the kind of things you're just describing. And I mean, maybe there's even more she can do in those spaces that feel symbolic, but also feel like they're they're touching the most critical issues of the country at the same time. Right. Well, I, I'll just say, I mean, we learned from Jamal that vice president's job is primarily to stay alive <laughs> in <laughs> case they're they need to become president and to break votes in Congress. My suggestion is really about if she does become president. I mean, yeah. whenever that happens and what we hope will be her ability to 
literally save the democracy, to pursue a scale of equity and justice in this country that we've not yet seen, um, and deliver on the promise that being a Black woman or Black Asian or uh, any kind of first means more than just the symbolic and representational pride that comes with it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot about sharing her identity politics and, and not necessarily sharing her her politics, her policies. Um, but I appreciated what Jamal said about that we don't really know her yet and that a presidential campaign is also a process of getting to know somebody and we're going to learn more about her and she's also going to continue to, to, to fill this role. So this was really a, a valuable talk and I appreciate you. All right. Love you, man. Love you, too. Some of My Best Friends Are is a production of Pushkin Industries. The show is written and hosted by me, Khalil Gibran Muhammad, and my best friend, Ben Austin. This show is produced by Lucy Sullivan. Our editor is Sarah Nix. Our engineer is Amanda K. Wong. And our managing producer is Constanza Gallardo. At Pushkin, thanks to Letal Molad, Julia Barton, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, John Schnars, Greta Cohn, and Jacob Weisberg. Our theme song, Little Lily, is by fellow Chicagoan, the brilliant Avery R. Young, from his album Tubman. You definitely want to check out his music at his website, averyryoung.com. You can find Pushkin on all social platforms at Pushkin Pods, and you can sign up for our newsletter at pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. And if you like our show, please give us a five-star rating and a review. And listen, even if you don't like it, give it a five-star rating and a review. And please tell all of your best friends about it. Thank you. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, "This is this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything?" I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover: The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm 
slash plus. 